the poor old elites, they've had a problem over the years and decades and centuries because there's not many of them and there's a lot of the rest of us. And yet they manage to implement policies which are disadvantageous to the rest of us um, and they get away with it. Why is that? It's not a matter of imposing it by force. It's not a matter of policing people's conformance to a system. It's enabled through the social morality. Stay on British Thought Leaders, I welcome back Rick Bradford. Rick has had a successful career in physics and engineering and is an honorary senior research fellow at the University of Bristol. He's also a world-renowned authority on men's issues, writing under the pseudonym William Collins. Rick has recently released a new book called The Destructivists, about how the usurping of morals is destroying our society. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Rick Bradford, thanks for joining us again on British Thought Leaders. My pleasure, again, thank you for having me twice. You, you talked to us before about your book, The Empathy Gap. You have a new book out called Destructivists. Destructivists, yeah. Can you tell us like, what is destructivism? Yeah, it's, it's my umbrella term for um, what is generally called um, progressivism or cultural Marxism or uh, woke or um, the hard left or any one of many different uh, themes along that time. Critical theory would be another one. So it's, it's an um, umbrella term for all of them. Um, and you'll note from the nature of the term destructivist that um, it's clearly pejorative. Um, and that's because I think that's des it's deserved. So one of the differences between uh, the destructivists and the empathy gap, well, they're very different, they're di very different books. The empathy gap was, for a start, it was a very large book and it was an exercise in compiling empirical evidence. The Destructivist is a much smaller book. Um, it's not full of data and references. It's, it's a quick, quick read in comparison. And it is, and as I say immediately in the, in the preface, that it's a book about opinion. So it's not about empirical justification. It's about, it's about opinion. And, and because I, I'm upfront about that, I feel justified in using a pejorative term for these um, these social movements or political movements which I do regard as all having the common feature of being destructive either um, simply in their outcomes or probable outcomes or in some cases even in their intent so um, the book is much more overtly political than the previous book um, and yes, it's it's a book of opinion. It's a book of opinion, and uh, I make no bones about that. Um, but I'm trying to get at the the psychological and sociological origins of these phenomena that I dub destructivism. What is it that's being destroyed? What they're s seeking to destroy is the traditional. Western culture. Um, I say seeking to destroy it. In some in some cases, it is a clear objective. So, the cultural Marxist angle 
is. That's a clear objective, I think. Um, in other cases, it may not be so much an objective as something that they're happy to have happen as a collateral effect of the issues that they're more directly asserting. So that's it. It's our culture, our way of life, which is being represented as wholly reprehensible. And to achieve this, um, they they use uh, they're, they're highly selective in their view of things, very very skewed in their view of things. So it's it's rather reminiscent of the what I talked about last time, the constructive mendacity. Though um, they will raise a topic. Uh, but it'll be spinned in a way that um, sees only negatives in traditional Western approaches. What are the key features of this uh, moral usurpation that's um, talked about in the book? There is this destructivism, and how does it manifest in our society? Yeah, yeah. The the the, the, the what the book is trying to do is is to go beyond the political level. Because most people, when they talk about these issues, it's it's talked about at the political level, and to my mind, that's that's never been a sufficient explanation of motive. So I'm trying to really get at people's motives, and how is it these ideologies have become so popular? That's the real mystery. That's the real purpose of the book. How is it woke has become so contagious? And um, to get at that, you have to go below the political explanation. It doesn't, it doesn't do you any good to say, well, it's, it's cultural Marxism. Uh, even though that's true, it, doesn't, it, it just leaves you the obvious question, well, why are they cultural Marxists then? <laughs> What's the motivation? And motivation is always psychological. You know, it has to be. It's, Ultimately, if you keep pressing why, 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 you get to some psychological predisposition. Um, so it's the psychological level I'm really interested in, and that's where moral usurpation comes in. So, moral usurpation. Um, I, in my thesis, this is the explanation for the appeal of these phenomena. It's not some, not necessarily the, the appeal so much as the modus operandi, I think I should say of it, but it is the appeal to some people. So what moral usurpation is, is it's, um, it's a weaponization of issues which do have some genuine moral content, but it's a weaponization of them to progress an agenda which actually goes well beyond um, the issue in question and distorts the issue in question in um, pursuance of that agenda. So the actual process consists of, in the way I break it down, five parts, and we needn't go through all of them, but in, <clears throat> in the book I describe it in terms of moral infantilism, moral vampirism, the creation of zealots, uh, the appeal to the elites, which is an important part of it, and uh, the the creation of positive feedback mechanisms in society, which reinforce the process and make it contagious. So, I'll not go through all all those, um, but it's important to understand at least the the moral 
infantilism part and how this operates. So what's done is a topic is taken which, it, which does have some moral content. So it might be something like violence against women and girls. So violence against women and girls is bad. No one is in favour of that, right? That's, that's the, and the moral infantilism is to reduce that issue to just that. Violence against women and girls is bad. And then they pack in a whole load of policy below that, which is all flagged as that issue. And therefore, this is how the infantilism works. If you disagree with anything that follows in the policy, that means you're disagreeing with violence against women and girls is bad, which means you think it's good, which means you're a wicked, evil person. So the, what, what the moral infantilists do is they present every issue as black and white. And you either 100% agree with them, or you're 100% wicked. The idea of a difference of opinion doesn't enter into it. You're simply not allowed an opinion which is different. Because all opinion which is different is morally reprehensible and therefore not permitted. This is the origin of cancel culture. This is the origin of people not being able to speak their views on campus and so on. This is the moral infantilism in action. Only one view is right. And the difference between this and having an intellectual difference of opinion is the basis of intellectual difference of opinion is dialogue. Whereas if something is, is morally forced, then a disagreement isn't an intellectual disagreement. It's because you're morally reprehensible and you, won't, you just won't countenance it. That's how it works. That's the infantilism. So any, any nuance, any context any counter-argument and virtually any real de um, empirical data is hidden away in this infantilism. And so it becomes a gross distortion of reality. So in the violence against women and girls aspect, oh yeah, that's, of course that's an evil that we must try to overcome, but there will never be any spotlight of attention on well, violence against men and boys. There will never be any spotlight of attention on the domestic violence issue against men. So this is where it, I'm using this example because it meshes with what we talked about last. But you can have other examples. Um, the way in which COVID was handled, for example, is an, a, a, a very obvious example of moral infantilism, where there was a monomania on controlling a disease and any discussion around that, well, it is... Are the government interventions doing more harm than good? Um, are the, are the inter, do the invent, interventions even work? And, and, you know, in any case, is the disease as bad as it's being made out? And so on and so forth. And people are familiar with the arguments there. But all that is infantilization of the issue. A monomania on one view is right. And you saw there the vilification, COVID case, the vilification of people that disagreed, you know, with terms like anti-vaxxers and uh, you're killing granny. I mean, you're killing granny is moral usurpation. That's moral coercion without any question. So that is how a, a, an issue which has a genuine moral core, you know, because, you know, protecting people from disease is a genuine moral, moral, morally relevant issue, for example. That's how it is distorted and manipulated into a complete agenda 
which actually distorts the real issue away from where it should be. Um, so it's being, this is being used as, as a means of smuggling in things under, under, under agenda. And the moral, the moral vampirism, as I call it, is the rolling out of that process to everything. So every issue that can be plundered for its moral cachet is infantilized so that the mechanism is that the the good people you know the people that are on message the progressive people all align with the infantilized position on the whole range of issues and anyone that's disagreeing on any of them is is denied any 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 moral sucker at all because they're seen as if you occupy the moral high ground on every issue you deny the moral high ground to the opposition so it makes everyone else look wicked it's a manipulation of, of the social morality and this is this is the key feature in 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 the in the book and in the argument about how this works the confusing thing about morality is it's an ambiguous word because actually there are two moralities there's what I would call the true morality, or the natural morality, or the absolute morality, that is not mutable, that you can't manipulate, because, well, if, if you're a, a theist, you believe it comes from God, but you don't have to, you don't have to be a, a, a theist to, to believe in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a true or natural morality. You can, you can believe it has a, an orig a, a transcendent origin, maybe, maybe but not necessarily a, a theistic one. Many people now don't believe there is, there is such a thing, which helps the moral infantilism process, because the other morality, which is completely different, is what I call the social morality. And this is a set of norms of behaviours that become adopted and become agreed in a given society. And it's clear that this is not an absolute. It's clear that it is relative to the particular society because you look at different societies around the world and they have different social moralities. What is perfectly acceptable in one will get you into deep trouble in another and vice versa because the social morality can be changed according to how that society has evolved and so forth. So the social morality, which is what people think of as being moral, many people anyway, um, that's what guides their sense of morality. So this observation creates a mechanism for a very powerful means of manipulating a population by a political axis who has a, has a vested interest in distorting the moral perspective in a way that aligns with their agenda. So to show how far this can go um, in, a, in a society, you can just look at things like um, Black Lives Matter, for example. Um, not just Black Lives Matter, but critical race theory generally, of which that's an example, where now we find the amazing situation where people that subscribe to that view which many people now regard as the correct view, because every time you see footballers taking the knee, they're subscribing effectively to the critical race theory agenda. 
But that in that school of thought, it's been infantilized to the extent where they would see Martin Luther King as being a racist because his view that you should judge a man by the content of his char character, not the color of his skin, they would now repudiate as a form of sexism, as a form of racism. Uh, that's how crazy it becomes. That's how far you can distort the public perception of morality because a lot of people are now subscribing to that view, which is wholly wrong from my point of view. I think from the point of view of, of a true morality, which is not mutable, then you should indeed judge people as individuals on the strength of their character, not any identity characteristic, the colour of their skin or anything else. So this, this mechanism, this moral infantilism, moral usurpation mechanism, is very powerful and it can make people believe things which perhaps 10, 20 years ago they would not have ever considered believing, but it can be, it can be morphed with clever use of particularly the media. If you have control of the media and you have control of the education establishments and the acad academia, then you've got the populace at your mercy in terms of being infantilized. If we've got people that are kind of on board with the whole um, this message, this message, this message, but suddenly they come across one that really jars them, do they then kind of leave the whole, like jump the whole ship, or do they change themselves and just keep on with agreeing to the message? It varies with the person. I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes you find that, well, mostly people try and rationalise the position and and bring bring the position around to something that they do find aligns with their newfound right. sense of morality. Other times, though, people may be brought round, and, and you do see this. I mean, people that I, I would describe in political terms as being the soft left. You see a lot of them now running away from woke. Mm. Um, and I've seen friends of mine who might always have been right of centre but moderate right, now adopting what I would call political Christianity as a way of, of distancing themselves from the way the culture's going. So you see it on, on both sides, but it's definitely sort of, there's a polarization, because at the same time, people are already fairly hard, you know, progressive or whatever you want to call them, are getting ever more extreme. And, it, and there's more of them, of course, as we see with, um, you know, what's happening in, in Scotland with the uh, Gender Recognition Act, which, I mean, that would have been unthinkable 10 years ago. And yet now, it's mainstream politicians pushing it. It's quite incredible. So it happened with the COVID, it seemed. There was a while where everyone followed along, and now a lot of those people who were following along, at least from people I know, suddenly have quite an opposing view, and were like, I can't believe I did that. I don't really know what happened. Unless they get yeah. swept along with some kind of wave. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think some people are beginning to change their mind. And in a way, in a horrible bleak way, actually, given that so many people have died. Um, the COVID example may provide an opportunity to open people's eyes to this issue, as long as they can see it not just in the context of one disease, but in the broader context of the whole sort of moral usurpation issue. Whether that happens or not, I don't know. But yeah, certainly more people are, are waking up to it. I think even people um, 
you know, and the medical fraternity who were initially pushing vaccines have now decided that, oh, just a minute, <laughs> there's real evidence out there that they're not as safe as they should be. Um, so yeah, there are there are a number of people changing their mind, but not everyone. I mean, you know, I think most of my ex-colleagues are still happily taking booster shots and wearing, they would no doubt wear masks again at a shot if they were told to. Yeah, so there's still a long way to go, I'm afraid, on that one. But yeah, uh, the handling of COVID was a perfect example of moral usurpation. So this wokeism or destructivism, or whatever we call it, is quite a powerful force at the moment. We see politicians who used to be fairly rational or seemed fairly rational, and suddenly they kind of go woke. Yeah. Even institutions like the police seem to be kind of signing up is this a conscious decision on their part? Or are they getting swept along with a kind of current in society? How do we understand it? It's mostly getting swept along. There will be a few more knowing actors, particularly at senior levels, um, and particularly at global, international levels, that, that on, they are more knowing, they more know, know what, what they're pushing. But mostly it's people getting swept along in a system. Um, in the case of the police, the police do what they're trained to do. So for the police, it's coming from above them. Uh, so the, the, the key mechanism here is that's driving the popularity at the senior levels in political circles and so on, is what I call the woke industrial complex. Well, actually, that's a term I stole from Vivek Ramaswamy from his book, Woke Inc., which I strongly recommend by the way but I, I, I borrowed that term but I've made it um, more specific to the moral usurpation axis so it's worth going into that in some detail because I think it sheds light on how the system works um, at a number of different levels what you've got to appreciate is this is all about power it's all about political power or, or other forms of power and there's four, in the book, I talk about four different forms of power. Uh, one is what you would normally think of as power, which is uh, political or civic power. So that's the power to be able to make laws, it's the power to be able to impose taxes, it's the power to control police forces and armies, it's all that stuff, the governmental stuff. But then there's money, is another form of power. And there's control of information, which is, you know, knowledge is power, as we know. Um, but then there's the fourth form of power, which is the one that people have hitherto overlooked and which I'm really bringing to the party in this book. And that is moral power. That is the manipulation of the social morality. That is also a form of power. That's very important. It's been overlooked, and yet... It's very important because if you think about it, the poor old elites, they've had a problem over the years and decades and centuries because there's not many of them and there's a lot of the rest of us. And yet they manage to implement policies which are disadvantageous to the rest of us um, and they get away with it. Why is that? It's not a matter of imposing it by force. It's not a matter of policing people's conformance to a system. It's enabled through the social morality. 
absolutely key, and this has always been the case, it's not new. If you think back in time, um, when we had a very rigid class structure, even perhaps as far back as the feudal period, but you don't have to go back that far. When we had this class structure, there was a perception of, or, in, or an ethos, of knowing your place. And that was part of the social morality. You should know your place. You were born into a place, and that's what you should be happy with. Because if you tried bettering yourself, then that was rep morally reprehensible. And you would be censured for it, and you'd be regarded as, a, as, a, as a, a, you know, an imposter. So th this aspect of mor social morality and the way in which it's underpinned the elite power structure has been massively overlooked. But that's what I'm really pointing to. So there we have the four sources of power. And then, then in, in this system of the woke industrial complex, you, it, there are three, I call it the triumvirate of power, there's three groupings that wield those sources of power. One is, of course, government. The other is the corporate axis, which includes the globalists. Uh, but the third one is the intellectual clerisy, or the ideolo ideological clerisy even. So that is um, the education system, uh, the universities, the academy, um, the, the media, the entertainment business, the arts centres. So, and if you think about it, they all have different access to different types of those four types of power. So obviously government access is the governmental civic power and some some access to money for the corporate access it's money big time that they have access to and now thanks to big tech they also have a control over information and then the intellectual clerisy have a have a monopoly on the moral right that's their big and and they produce the content for information so you see the symbiosis here. They, they all have different forms of power, and they're all interested in power. So what you have, in effect, is a trading relationship between them. Because the, the intellectual clerisy wants funding. They want money, and they get money from government and, and corporations. And what do government and corporations get back from them? They get the moral um, standing. The mor it puts them on the moral high ground if they follow that agenda. It feels that the big players in this third group are maybe quite different in the last 10 years than they used to be. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, particularly in terms of social media. Um, and, but this is, why, this is why it's not only the universities have gone woke, but corporations have gone woke and the politicians have gone woke because that's how it works. Going woke is just their, their, mean, their means of access to the moral high ground. That's what it is. But the moral infantilism is crucial because it's, it's actually not real morality. It's not real morality that any genuinely religious person, for example, would recognise as real, real morality. It's infantilised to, to um, serve the purposes of, uh, of, of keeping the woke industrial complex going as the power centre. So it ultimately comes down to self-interest. 
it's not just about money, although money is a big part of it. It's also about people's career advancement and just looking good and having status in society. So that's how the elites hang on to their power. And part of it, by the way, part of the, the infantilization process is automatically the creation of in-groups and out-groups. That's always been a part of the elites holding on to power. Because divide and conquer remains the most common and the best strategy. If you're a small force trying to defeat a big force, you try and create division in the big force. So creating division amongst the masses is the basic strategy. And by adopting moral infantilism, they create division in society. Because only some people are willing to be infantilized. Only some people will, are willing to go along with that agenda. Some of us, you and I perhaps, are not. So we, there is created the in-group and the out-group by that mechanism. And that's that. Also, this is the key bit, really, of which people overlook. We are being played. We are being played because that, that division also helps the elites. Now, that doesn't mean to say I think we should stop opposing these wicked, uh, wicked ideas that are, are not aligned with the moral right. But it's important to recognise that the division between us and those that swallow the agenda is part of what keeps the elites in power by keeping the public divided. We're being played. It's the idea that um, they, the messages used to kind of control are, are these kind of infantilised moral messages suggestive that society has kind of dumbed down somewhat. Yes. Yes. And, and it's, it's morally dumbed down specifically, not necessarily intellectually. Um, but the, the morals... The, mor the moral psyche lives within the emotional psyche. That's another important point to grasp. It's not really rational. It lives in the emotional psyche. And, and um, the work of Jonathan Hyde and co-workers is very good on this. It's, it's, it, um, so, yes, people have been people have been made receptive to this moral infantilization by having their capacity to think in genuine moral terms, etiolated. And that, that has come about by the loss of a moral anchor. You see, people find it easy if they have moral guidance. They have a, a, a training in genuine morality. Rather than, otherwise they have to discover it for themselves. I mean, we're not all Buddha, are we? We're not, we're not all Jesus Christ. We can't all discover absolute morality for ourselves. So having guidance in that respect is the key thing. And whether that comes from religion or elsewhere doesn't really matter. But religion was the traditional source of moral anchorage. And so it's no accident that this rise of moral infantilism has come hand in hand with the decline of religion. And it's no accident that say the religious right in the USA are the ones that are opposed to the infantilization on, on the left. You know, you, you, it, it, of course all religions, religions themselves are a human in, institution as opposed from the transcendent reality behind them. Um, so all religions themselves can be traduced 
to serve the purposes of of um, of a false morality because you know, there is uh, humans involved in it but at least they fo they form a moral anchor that will frustrate the opportunity of bad actors to weaponize the people's perception of morality in the wrong direction even if even if the, the religion doesn't anchor you at the optimal port, as it were, um, it's better to be anchored than dr adrift on the moral ocean. So who, what, what is the end goal of this destructivism and who ultimately benefits from it? So in terms of the end goal, it will vary according to who you're talking about. I don't think for most people that are benefiting this system, they actually actively want to impose some new socio-political regime, but there are those that do. And this is where the globalist um, technocratic axis is the most pernicious. <clears throat> because <clears throat> although there is um, a psychological origin to the, uh, the contagiousness and popularity of this, the directing, you know, the source of direction comes from the top down. And bodies like the United Nations, World Economic Forum, and all the ancillary organisations like the IMF, World Bank, etc., etc., play the part in this because they're all very much aligned with an agenda which um, is going to profit from the rise of this, this system. And you see this in the policies being pursued such as ESG, you know, environmental, social and governments, the, uh, the WEF's uh, stakeholder capital, capitalist uh, initiative, is, is an alliance between the corporate axis and the political axis in effect. So it's part of it's consolidating that woke industrial complex. And so they definitely have a vested interest in it and it's all wrapped up in ultimately, you know, uh, global governments, world government in effect, but not by an elected body. Because the thing you can point to about is all these bodies have in common is they're not elected. You know, we can't vote somewhere to get rid of them. So it's an undermining of democracies. And, and it's being enacted through this globalist axis, which has attained power, sort of, which is supranational power, really by stealth. It's, I think... I mean, I didn't appreciate this until relatively recently, um, but it's gone a long way already. Um, and it's because they, they pick out individuals that, that look like they're going, to, going somewhere in national politics and they effectively groom them in the system. That's what Davos is all about. It's a grooming system. Um, but it's an undermining of democracy. They, this axis has always had, um, has always been against the nation-state. It sees, sees the nation-state as being the source of all evil. Um, whereas, actually, it may well be that the nation-state is the only thing that will save us from them. <laughs> we have to reinforce our sovereignty, but hey, we've been singing that tune since, since Brexit days, and there's a long way to go. I admit I was a bit naive in Brexit days. I thought, thought Brexit alone would help us a great deal, but I'd underestimated the globalist influence then. There's a great, there's a great deal more of, of these organisations than just the EU. And there's still 
they still have a great deal of power over us. With a lot of these issues, they seem to trace back to kind of communist movements of the olden days. I remember Marcuse talking about tolerance is a, a source of oppression and to be intolerant. And I, I get the impression from your book that it's the intolerant that kind of win the culture war, or at least win the battles in the culture war. Yes and no. Um, that, that particular chapter in the book is um, me trying to explain what I did in a paper that I published in a journal of mathematical sociology based on, uh, based on evolutionary game theory, which is an algebraic model. So this is playing to my background in physics, of course. And um, I, 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 you won't understand this from, or you won't get this from the original paper because I was careful the way I phrased it. Um, what I had in mind was identity politics, but I didn't phrase it in that way. I phrased it in a very uh, academic way. As what happens if you have two groups of people where individuals are not recognisable, uh, but only group membership is recognisable, and they're, they're jockeying for dominance in some sense. And you can model that with game theory by having the individuals play each other in a notional game and either winning or losing. And according to whether that group as a whole does well and wins a lot uh, or not, they will, f they will thrive by increasing in their proportion. In the so it's like evolution in the sense that if you're, if, if you, if you have a, a fit, if you're fit for your environment, you'll, you'll thrive. And if you're not fit, you'll, you'll gradually fade away. So you can model that. And of course, what I was really thinking is, is modelling identity politics, uh, because the, the game then can be seen as um, a conflict between two worldviews or two opinions, and which one's coming out on top. And what happens was incredibly interesting. It took me by surprise, so much so that I put it to one side for a couple of years because I thought I must have made a mistake in the algebra. And I came back to it and checked it again and again and again and again and then ran numerical models. And it, it turns out that no matter what parameters you use, because there are a lot of different parameters you can feed in, it doesn't matter what parameters you use, as you were indicating there, the more intolerant wins. In other words, in, a, in, a, in game theory, uh, uh, typically it's like the prisoner's dilemma, if, if you're familiar with that. The, the prisoner's dilemma is where two people have have been um, arrested, taken into separate rooms for interrogation. And, and the game is that if they both keep quiet, they'll get the minimum sentence. Right? But if one of them keeps quiet and the other one talks, then the one that keeps quiet gets a really, really big sentence. And the one that, that, um, the one that turns Queen's evidence is let go. On the other hand, if they both talk, they get somewhere in the middle. So they get a high, heavier sentence than if both kept quiet. But, but, but clearly a lot worse than if one of them turned queen evidence and the other one didn't. So the, 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 the sort of paradox, it's not really a paradox, but the odd thing about the prisoner's dilemma is they're both, um, they're both going to gain if they, they cooperate, right? Because the alternative is they both turn Queen's evidence, and then they both go, go down for longer than they would. But 
what would you do? If you cooperate and the other one squeals, then you're really going to go down for a <clears throat> an awful long time. So whatever the other guy does, you're better off if you, if you talk. And so the logic of that is you both talk, but then you end up both not doing as well as if you both stay quiet. And this is the paradox of cooperation, because if you cooperate with, and this is quite general, if you cooperate, very often you can both benefit from that. But if you've got a cooperating situation and you get a freeloader that comes along and takes advantage of you, he can make mincemeat of, out of you on that occasion and you really get punished. So that's the basis of the, that's the sort of logic of the evolutionary um, game theory idea, which only you reinterpret, you know, the, the sentence length as, you know, if you cooperate, that's tolerance. If you if you renege, if you talk, then that's being um, intolerant. That's how you reinterpret it. So the intolerant always wins. The the, the, the intolerant the the group that's more intolerant expands in the population till the other one goes extinct in every case, remarkably. And actually that only puts a sort of algebraic gloss on what a lot of people have, have observed. The more intolerant wins. The more intolerant drives out the more tolerant. However, <laughs> I'm glad that's if you however. stop there it would just be miserable. <laughs> but what that really illustrates because remember, this only comes about if you d if you individuals are not recognisable, and if you only if people are only only the group membership is identified, not the individual. What really happens when you do when you run game theory type simulations, either with real people or in computers, where individuals are recognisable, is what tends to happen is you get a variant on a tit-for-tat type behaviour, whereby if he cooperates with you, and you cooperate with him, that'll, that's perfectly happy, that'll continue forever. But if you cooperate and he reneges on you, then the next time you're not going to deal with him. That's tit-for-tat. That is a typical sort of strategy, it's not quite as simple as that, but that, that's what it comes down to. And so in real situations where the individual is recognisable, it makes a huge difference because individuals then come with a reputation. So there's the, you talk about the four R's here, the recognition of the individual, reputation, um, uh, ret uh, uh, it reward and retribution, something like that. So <clears throat> that's, how, that's how humans manage to build very large scale cooperative, harmonious societies without kinship. This is unique in the animal kingdom, I, I think. There are other animals, insects and social animals, that form large groups, but the, they're, they're invariably based on kinship. So there's, gen, there's a genetic driver for that. But humans can, can form huge communities of multiple millions that get on, despite the occasional fracas, generally very cooperative. You know, you go out on the street here and and you're not seeing people fighting each other all the time. Maybe occasionally, but not that much. So this is this is remarkable. And but this is how it happens. This is how it happens through the recognition and reputation and so forth. 
it's not, in, you know, our harmonious society isn't just enforced by the law. If the only thing he had was the law, that would be far too crude an instrument. Because you're not going to go running to the law because somebody's been nasty to you in the street. There's such a thing as common decency and politeness and so on. And people adopt this standard of behaviour. This, this is the social morality, of course. This is where he comes from. People adopt a common standard of behaviour, social morality, because it evolves to be this is the way this society cooperates with each other. But you have to be able to recognise individuals. That's, that is the learning point from that analysis. Not that the most intolerant wins. Uh, the most intolerant wins if you don't recognise individuals. So if you go down the identity politics route, that's what you've got in front of you. Increasing intolerance. And we're seeing this. The other aspect of that, by the way, is schism. You may think the intolerant groups won because it's now the 100% of the population. But what happens is one subgroup within that group becomes a little bit more intolerant still. Then that will expand. So a schism will form, a separate group will form, and that new group, because it's more intolerant, will drive out the other one. You're seeing this now in feminism. Feminism schismed into intersectional feminism. Now it's schismed into trans. Tran you know, the, the poor old second-wave feminists are now trans-exclusionary radical feminists. They're TERFs, aren't they? Uh, so that's a schism. Because trans came from the feminist movement, I make no mistake, because it was the feminists that created our modern concept of gender. Without the feminists, that would not exist. So trans could not exist because we would not have that concept of gender. So trans is a schism of the feminist movement, and they're proving more intolerant than the previous <laughs> feminists. And you know, they're being cancelled. Poor old, you know. Uh, second wave feminists of yes, Julie Bindell and all these yeah. people are being being cancelled by them. The That's an example of it in, in operation. The but left will eat itself is always the phrase. Yes, isn't it? The, yes yeah. exactly. The revolution eats its own. That's what it is. That's exactly what it is. But the antidote to it is Martin Luther King. It's to recognise the individual and the merits of the individual, not the colour of his skin. In other words, not the identity group. That is the antidote to what's actually happening, which is social atomization and breakdown. It's because of the it's because of the rise of identity politics. And identity politics is the division that's caused by moral infantilism. That's how it all glues together. Your previous book, The Empathy Gap, was evidence, like nine hundred pages of evidence, whereas this book is a lot more opinion based, which is quite unusual for someone of your scientific background. Yeah. Why did you decide to do it in this um, more opinion-based way? Well, one reason is I wrote that book from first word to publication in four months, and I was driven by an, a sense of extreme urgency. Um, so I wanted to get down on paper what I thought the issues were that I've just been describing. And so that's one reason. But the other reason I was very well aware, oh, by the way, I have not abandoned empiricism. Far from it. Um, the issues that I um, talk about can all be susceptible. You know, they can all be ad addressed through empirical inquiry, and should be, and should be. One of them has, because the empathy gap is addressing one of those infantilized issues, namely, 
women good, men bad, I suppose you could say. There's the infantilised issue there. Um, but you could not possibly do that in one book because the, the moral usurpation, woke industrial complex thing is an overarching sort of, it's an algorithmic system that many different applications are instances of. So, you know, the, the gender issue is one. But we've all, as we've said, the, the, the COVID, handling of COVID is another, uh, the climate change is another, the trans issue is another, and so it goes on. There's, there's, lo there's lots of, I, I, one of the chapters actually goes through, I don't know, half a dozen examples. Um, each one of those would require its own empathy gap, 700 pages, but of going through the evidence. So, take the COVID issue eminently possible to take the empirical approach to that and people are doing you know, there's lots of stuff out there now on the individual elements that you'd have to bring together for the whole picture so you'd have to look at masks do they work if they don't work did the government know they didn't work if the government knew that you know who knew what when and if the government knew they didn't work why did they impose them exactly and what is the nudge unit? <laughs> is it morally acceptable to deploy psyops on a civilian population in peacetime? And lockdowns, do they work? And what was the evidence? Why? Why was the um, why was the epidemic policy that was in place thrown away in place of another one that was made up on the fly? The the, the mechanism used to um, to give emergency approval to the vaccines. By what standard was that acceptable? What, what, what was the standard? Is it written down? <laughs> and so on. I mean, you know, the, the, you know the issue. They, they go on and on in the case of COVID. It would probably be bigger than the empathy gap if you did that thoroughly. But that's how it can be approached empirically. All those things can be approached empirically where, there's, where it's medical issues, there's bags of data out there in published papers. Um, on vaccine harms, for example, and, and all those other issues. And where it's more uh, not quite so numerical, like um, the, uh, the legitimacy of the PSYOPs unit, um, you can still address that empirically by asking, was it legal? If it's legal, where, where's, where under what legislation is that legal? Um, and if you decide, well, yeah, we can't, we can't say it's not, not legal, then is it ethical? And, you know, get some proper ethicists on the job looking at that uh, and, and looking at the implications of it and what harms it's done, because that can be quantified. So there's the makings of truly enormous book there, and, and people are piecing it together, of course. And the same is true of climate changes and all one. My goodness, that would be, uh, that would be a whole suite of books on that one but it's eminently approachable empirically. Um, I mean, on both those topics, I've looked, I've looked at them a bit, not, not anything like the degree of detail required to write a book, but I've, you know, I've looked at both those a bit, which is why I can, I can say with some confidence they are instances of moral usurpation. I mean, the climate change thing is reduced to are you in favour of trashing the planet or not? Because, you know, if if you're not in favour of trashing the planet, that means you favour net zero. That's the infantilism. 
I mean, that's a non sequitur, of course, obviously, but the infantilized have actually been brought to believe that, incredibly. So, yeah. So in terms of this destructivism that is happening, what can be done to make it better? Um, I think we need to keep we need to keep talking about it. Um, you need, it just like my answer to the the last uh, the last interview in the context of the empathy gap, it's um, you need to be brave enough to speak out if you know in a in a measured but firm way, you know, because part of it is ignorance. You know, get over. We've got to we've got to overcome. It's not it's not people are vested in it that we have to overcome here. It's it's the public that believe what they're being told that where um, where we can make progress. You're not really going to make progress against the people that have a vested interest in continuing to pursue these lines. So we have to we have to try and penetrate the public mind. But that, that's of course hard to do when you're not in possession of the me the main media, which is where things like this are very valuable. Um, but we have to do our best, keep keep trying on that. And the other thing is, um, well, it depends what the future holds. Um, at the moment, things are not looking good in terms of the way this agenda is playing out because the globalist technocratic axis does seem intent on using these narratives to impose ever-increasing authoritarianism. That's the way it's looking. Um, you know, there's already intimations that freedom of movement is going to be constrained. Well, we've already seen that under COVID, but at a more local level with what's happening in Oxford, for example. Um, so, well, that may play into, our, into the hands of the opposition, because one of the things that I emphasised last time is the formation of local communities. Well, if you can't go more than 50 minutes walk from your home, that's going to encourage the formation of tighter local communities with a cohesive bond that they're all locked into the same canton, or whatever you're going to call it, together. Um, so that that is, again, a, a, something that might be beneficial. But we've got to wake up the bulk of the public who are still a million miles away from understanding what's going on. Not, not that I'm saying that my view of things is necessarily 100% right. Uh, it might not be. I hope I'm exaggerating. I hope. Um, but the, the, the constant refrain of conspiracy theory every time you mention this is, is simply not good enough. I mean, we need to start replying to that. Well, you're a complacency theorist, which is more dangerous because there's an awful lot of complacency. People think, well, I live in a, in a free, liberal, democratic society, and they don't understand the extent to which our democracy has already been undermined, because it's been leached away into foreign bodies. So it's not going to be easy, but, you know, ultimately, ultimately, since this is all about moral usurpation, really, in my estimation. The real level at which you have to fight it is that. It's the moral level. You have to undermine it at the moral level. Live not by lies, as somebody said. Um, you have to 
the most important thing is maintaining your own personal integrity and commitment to to virtues. I know it sounds very pious, but that is the way to go. That is the antidote. Live not by lies, and keep your eye fixed on true moral rectitude, and not not this artificial bowing and scraping to the to the agenda, which is appalling. Rick Bradford, thanks for joining us again on British Thought Leaders. My pleasure.